Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 36. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and we are recording this episode on August 26, 2021 in New Orleans, Louisiana. My neighbor's playing music a little loud this afternoon, so maybe some of that will leak through into the background. This episode is Sir Francis Drake, Around the World in a Thousand and Eighteen Days, Part 2. If you haven't heard last week's episode yet, it's probably best to listen to it before this one. Not that I'm the prerequisites overlord or anything, just saying. Before we get back to Drake, I want to thank you for listening. This little hobby project is spreading organically now, and we are averaging more than 1,100 downloads per episode. Joe Rogan isn't looking over his shoulder, but people who are not friends of mine or even friends of friends of mine have become regular listeners, and that is huge fun. I've also gotten quite a few nice notes, which are incredibly motivating. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends or share on Facebook or Twitter. Or write a nice review on Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts and that sort of thing. It seems that there is an audience for keeping politics and moralizing out of history, or at least trying to do. Nobody can do it perfectly, of course, but one can try. So indulge me in a little personal story before we get to the Strait of Magellan. As some of you know, my father was professor of history at the University of Iowa, and then history bibliographer at Princeton's Firestone Library. He died in 1998 way too young just about four years older than I am now, and I miss him every day. Dad was a medievalist specializing in 14th century France, but American history had been his second subject in graduate school, and he knew an awful lot about it. Not surprisingly, I get a bit wistful thinking or hoping that he would have enjoyed this podcast, and I often reflect on how great it would be to be able to talk to him about it. I certainly remember him when I work on this. Anyway, it will not surprise you to hear that my father believed quite strongly that historians should strive to keep politics out of the classroom. Critical theorists will say that is impossible, and in a pure sense, they're correct. But it's possible to try to keep out politics, and that is important because it is the trying that allows for open-minded, and intellectually inclusive discussion and debate. How many students will ask questions, challenge assumptions, debate conclusions, and admit mistakes, all essential to learning, if the professor of all people is arguing for a particular political point of view, especially in today's world? Even if they aren't worried about the impact on their grade, which sometimes they should be. Certainly, my father tried to keep politics out. There was a moment back then that is evidence he was doing a good job at being even-handed. In the early 1970s, when the cool kids were practicing radical politics in many universities, including Iowa, one of the campus's leading left-wing agitators, a self-identifying Marxist, approached Dad after his last lecture of the semester and said, Professor Henneman, I've been listening to you all semester and I have no idea what your political beliefs are. In my dad's mind, that meant he had done his job well. 
Today, that exchange probably wouldn't happen because any professor who did not teach history from a critical theory perspective would, at least to the crits, be revealing his or her political position as not an inherent of critical theory. Critical theory dictates, in effect, that everybody is practicing politics in the classroom and in everything else they do, one way or the other. And therefore, everyone is always taking a side. Suffice it to say, I reject that construct because I believe it undermines both the practice of history as a discipline, I use that word advisedly, and because it makes the teaching and reading of it so darn tedious. Single-cause explanations of anything complex are almost always incomplete to the point of being defective. What human behavior do you know of, be it individual or a group, that actually has one motive or one explanation? And single-cause explanations are boring. My own belief, and I know there are great American historians who at least quietly think the same, is that the reduction of American history to a predictable exercise in national condemnation has been one of the reasons why the percentage of undergraduates who major in history has fallen by three-quarters or more in the last generation. No doubt I will have more to say on this subject from time to time in the future. Suffice it to say that my goal is to present a history of the Americans that neither condemns us nor glorifies us, but explains us. As I said in the introductory episode zero, I believe there is dignity in our national story, along with tragedy, triumph, brilliance, hypocrisy, magnificence, depravity, corruption, venality, genius, defeat, and glory. And yes, there's exploitation, oppression, and redemption. Rant over, at least for the time being. One other announcement. I'm throwing money at the scruffy website and actually hired a design outfit to make it look all nice and stuff and to improve its functionality. For various technical reasons relating to me not wanting to disrupt the connection between the website and the podcast hosting site, the rebuild of the website will occur online. In effect, we will be living in the house while we renovate it. If you've ever done that before, you know it can get a little rocky. Anyway, bear with me. If you go look at the website and have thoughts on it, please send me a note to the historyoftheamericans at gmail.com. And I'll pass it along to the team. When last we left Drake and Company, it was August 1578, and the fleet had spent a good part of the southern winter in the protected harbor at Port St. Julian in today's Argentina, about 100 miles north of the eastern entrance to the Strait of Magellan. That was where Drake was headed, because that was the only way that any European knew of to get into the Pacific Ocean by heading west. Prevailing geographical knowledge predicted that South America connected to, effectively, Antarctica, although that continent would not be discovered by Europeans until Russians reached it in 1820, still 242 years in the future. Geographers of the age had named the hypothetical southern continent Terra Australis, a name that would echo in the land down under. The fleet entered the strait on August 21st, but strong westerlies prevented any progress the first day. 
The ships anchored in the lee of the Cape there, which Magellan had named the Cape of 11,000 Virgins. I've not dug into why Magellan gave it that inspired name. and look forward to one of our devoted listeners figuring it out and dropping me a line. Go to it. That evening, Drake held a ceremony to rename the pelican the Golden Hind, a hind being the English term for a female red deer. In doing this, Drake was sucking up to Sir Christopher Hatton, one of his biggest investors and the employer of Thomas Doty, whom Drake had executed for mutiny at Port St. Julian. Hatton's family crest had a hind on it. The Golden Hind would go on to become one of the most celebrated vessels in English naval lore, and that is saying something. From 1937 to 1967, the British Hapeny depicted the Golden Hind on its reverse. The strait was very difficult sailing. Magellan had taken 37 days to traverse it, and subsequent attempts by Spanish voyagers had by and large failed or been brutal. The last attempt had been 21 years before, when a Spanish expedition from Chile managed it heading west to east. There were no good maps, and if you look at it now on Google Maps, you might do that right now, in fact, if you're not behind the wheel of the car or on the Stairmaster or something, you can see how twisty and difficult it is. Drake would do it in an astonishing 16 days. Magellan had named the southern shore Tierra del Fuego because the Indians there lit fires as his ships passed. That west-to-east Spanish fleet in 1557 saw the same thing. During Drake's passage, the Portuguese pilot da Silva, who Drake had sort of kidnapped and brought along, noted in his log that the Indians lit great fires on the shore as they passed. Sadly, I've seen no explanation for why those Indians lit those fires. Maybe it was to signal, there's a lot of Indians here. A few days along, on August 24th, the fleet cleared the second narrows in the strait and anchored near a group of small islands. Drake claimed them for England, set up a monument marking the claim, and named the largest in the group Elizabeth Island. He had one of its trees cut down and put a log from it in the Golden Hind's hold for presentation to the Queen and his return. Dear Your Majesty, I have a log. The Elizabethans were nothing if not sentimental. Now to Samuel Ball for an interesting etymological observation. The islands Drake found were teeming with a strange type of flightless bird, bigger than a mallard, short and thick set together, having no feathers, but instead they're of a certain hard and matted down. Their feeding and provision is in the sea. Magellan's men had referred to them as geese. The Welshman in Drake's company dubbed them penguins, G-W-I-N-N-S, meaning white shirts. And that evening the company had a feast, finding them a very good and wholesome victual. Close quote. All right, all right. If there's one thing I can't stand, it's to see a penguin cry. Me neither. Penguins is practically chickens, and I hate to see chickens cry so much that I has to put them out of their misery. The next day, they slaughtered 3,000 penguins, sufficient to feed the fleet 
for about 40 days. Over the next 10 days or so, the fleet moved northwest, reaching the Pacific on September 6, 1578. There were various ins and outs and what-have-yous along the way, including another landing at which Drake gathered plants and herbs to ward off scurvy. He had them squeezed and their juice added to, presumably, penguin stew. Again, his stricken sailors recovered. Now, John Dee and other English geographers believed incorrectly that the west coast of South America worked its way to the northwest, so Drake followed that heading, leaving the strait, all the while moving away from land. By September 8, they'd sailed more than 150 miles under fair winds, but then everything changed. A gale blew out of the northeast and kept blowing for three weeks, sending the fleet far to the southwest under bare masts. At one point, the skies must have cleared a bit, because on the evening of September 15th, they saw John Dee's predicted lunar eclipse. This allowed them to fix longitude, even if with a substantial margin of error at approximately 90 degrees west of the meridian of England. Triangulating all of this on Google Maps, they'd been blown something like 700 miles west by southwest of the Pacific entrance to the strait. Several things might be said about this. The first is that small errors in measuring time can lead to large errors in measuring location. If Drake and his team were off by half an hour, they might have over or underestimated longitude versus England by seven and a half degrees. At that latitude, and we don't know his exact latitude, a degree of longitude is 45 to 50 miles. So maybe the fleet was only three to 400 miles off course. That's still a heck of a distance to be blown under bare masts. Attentive listeners will remember the other issue, which we discussed in last week's episode. The historical record says that John Dee predicted a lunar eclipse on September 15, 1578, and that Francis Drake saw it. Sadly, the NASA database of all lunar eclipses, which supposedly turns on math, shows no such eclipse in September 1578, even taking into account the change in the calendar starting in 1582. But why would Drake log an eclipse he didn't see? If any of you listeners out there are in the Washington Press Corps, I'm going to need you to run this one down with NASA on a quiet news day. I'll put a link to the Lunar Eclipse database in the show notes, because I know some of you will want to study it in detail. In any case, the now three ships the 150-ton Golden Hind, the 80-ton Elizabeth under Captain John Winter, and the 30-ton Marigold, managed to stay within sight of each other during the endless storms at least until the night of September 28. Then the Marigold disappeared, never to be seen again. Now Drake was down to two ships, which after searching for the Marigold for a bit, sailed under improving conditions to the far southern coast of South America, reaching land within a day or so of October 8, 1578. Then another gale came roaring out of the east. The Golden Hind and the Elizabeth sheltered in a cove, but the wind was so fierce that Drake decided that being tossed at sea was safer than the risk of being bashed against the rocks. He broke for open ocean, but the Elizabeth held fast to her anchor and survived the night. 
The next morning, Captain Winter took Elizabeth to sea, but there was no sign of the Golden Hind. Rather than proceeding north to the agreed-upon rendezvous further up the coast of Chile, and in fairness, that would have been difficult the way the winds were blowing, Winter took a ship back into the strait where he made repairs and set some probably disingenuous signal fires on the beach in the theory that Drake might see them, which of course Drake would not have done, because he would, as soon as he were able, sail of the rendezvous to the north. On November 1st, 1578, All Saints' Day, Winter set sail east through the strait and for England, and after an arduous journey made it home in late spring. Samuel Balf describes the Elizabeth's eventual return. On June 2nd, 1579, eight months after departing Drake in the South Sea, John Winter arrived on the Devon coast with the Elizabeth and immediately dispatched a confidential report to the Privy Council defending his decision to turn back. By June 10th, and again ten days later, Don Bernardino Mendoza, the Spanish ambassador to England, was able to write reports containing accurate accounts of Drake's voyage up to the point where Winter had become separated from him, including the trial and execution of Thomas Doty, and to send Philip the first warning that Drake was loose in the Pacific. There was a mole in the Privy Council, and at least the substance of Winter the Weasel's rear-covering memo had leaked to England's adversary. Fortunately for Drake, news traveled very slowly in the 16th century. By the time Mendoza was writing his report that would be the first warning to Philip that Drake was in the South Sea, as the Pacific was then known, Drake had captured an almost unbelievable amount of treasure off of Chile and Peru. By June 17th, just a week after Mendoza's first message to Philip, Drake had sailed most of the west coast of North America and was going ashore in California, Oregon, Washington, or British Columbia, depending on whom you ask. More on that controversy in a future episode. Back to October 1578. Winter didn't see Drake when he cleared the sheltering cove because the storm drove the Golden Hind southeast, this time along the coast. The storm blew for most of the month of October. No doubt this was getting tedious for everybody. And when it finally abated, the Golden Hind was at 56 degrees south, below the southernmost islands reaching off the tip of South America. There, Atlantic and Pacific met and there was no visible evidence of Terra Australis. Drake had discovered the stretch of water that ever since we have known as Drake's Passage. Fifty-two days had passed since the fleet had emerged from the fastest crossing of the Strait of Magellan of the Era. All but a very few of those days had been spent battling storms, and two of Drake's ships were missing. But summer was coming in the Southern Hemisphere, and the weather had turned fair. After stopping at some of the nearby islands to load up on delicious, tasty penguins, on November 1st, the same day that winter was turning the Elizabeth East in the Strait of Magellan well to the north, Drake and his remaining company of roughly 80 men and boys set sail for the coast of Chile, heading toward the agreed-upon rendezvous. On November 25th, after sailing 1,200 miles, they reached the island of Mocha, 
I'd like a little of that in my latte, please, which sits about 20 miles off the coast at latitude 38 degrees. Drake needed water, so he went ashore, met some friendly and cordial Indians, and by sign said they would return the next day to replenish their supply of fresh water. The next morning, Drake took some ten lightly armed men and a bunch of empty water casks ashore. Suddenly, more than a hundred Indians popped up from hiding places and unloaded a barrage of arrows. All of the English were hit by arrows, Drake twice, one arrow penetrating his face just below his right eye and the other grazing his scalp. Two of the men were stranded, but the rest managed to break away and get back to the Golden Hind. They were by this point covered in arrow wounds, and arrows stuck out of the side of their boat. Drake dispatched an armed party ashore to rescue the two stranded men. But by this time, the crowd of Indians on the beach was so large they did not dare to approach. They watched helplessly as the Indians butchered the two stranded sailors, cutting them into pieces. Drake's men were all in favor of blasting the Indians with cannon fire, but Drake vetoed retaliation. Drake's explanation was that the Indians were hostile because the Indians had mistaken them for Spanish, who had abused them, and he would not add to their suffering. On many future occasions, including just a few years hence on the coast of North Carolina, other English explorers would not be nearly so restrained or wise. According to Balf and John Sugden, whose biography of Drake I recommend, it is likely that Drake was right. The Indians on Mocha were probably members of the Araucanian tribe who occupied a long stretch of the coast of Chile. They'd been at war with the Spanish ever since 1535, at this point more than 40 years in the past, when the Spanish had started to push south from Peru to look for more gold and silver and Indians to enslave for use in the mines. The Araucanians were said to be particularly adept at integrating native and European technology and tactics, which allowed them to hold out much longer than most tribes in the region. Here's Sugden's description. The Araucanian success was partly due to their ability to integrate aboriginal skills with new ideas borrowed from the Europeans. They made use of horses taken from their enemies and develop weaponry to counter cavalry by lengthening their spears, strengthening their clubs, and creating a noose attached to a pole to ensnare the Spanish mounts. Some of the Indians even used arquebuses and cannon in the fighting. Twenty years after Drake's arrival on the Pacific, they launched their most successful onslaught and cleared all of their enemies out of the region south of the Biobio River. That they did not distinguish the English from the Spanish, as other Indians at other times were able to do, is probably because, until Drake, no Europeans other than the Spanish had ever sailed into the eastern Pacific. On the afternoon of the fearsome ambush, the Golden Hind bugged out. Within a week, it reached the Bay of Quintero, 350 miles to the north. They missed Valparaiso, the main port in those parts, maybe 15 miles to the south, but they saw herds of cattle on the hillsides rising up from the water, and so they knew they were in Spanish territory. At Quintero, they were greeted by a lone Indian fishing in a canoe. 
After explaining by signs that they wanted to trade for food, the Indian returned with a larger group carrying eggs, hens, and a fat pig. One of the Indians, who went by Felipe, spoke Spanish, and he told Drake there was a ship in the harbor at Valparaiso and offered to serve as guide. At Valparaiso, they spotted a storied Spanish ship, Los Reyes, nicknamed the Capitana, because in the 1560s it had sailed from Peru to the Philippines and back more than 18,000 miles in 22 months. Now, in December 1578, it sat alone in the harbor on an undefended coast in a part of the world where the Spanish thought they were the only Europeans. Now, quoting Balf again, Seeing Drake's ship and not imagining her to be anything but Spanish, the Capitana's crew brought out a drum and a butt of wine to welcome them. They remained unsuspecting up to the moment Thomas Moon, Moon was one of Drake's long-standing compadres, led a boarding party onto her deck and struck one of them with his fist, crying, Go down, dog! Much frightened, they quickly submitted, except one who jumped overboard and swam ashore to raise the alarm. When the Spaniards were secured below deck, Drake manned both the Capitana's boat and his own with arquebusiers and went ashore, at which time the inhabitants had fled. Santiago was located 60 miles inland, and Valparaiso consisted of only nine or ten houses, a church, and a warehouse, the houses yielding quantities of bread, bacon, and preserves, and the warehouse containing a store of wine. They also carried away the church's bell, the chalice, and some silver ornaments. Inspecting the Capitana, they found she was carrying 1,770 jars of wine, a quantity of cedar lumber, eh, and four leather and iron-bound cases, each containing 75 pounds of gold. There are 14.58 troy ounces in a pound of gold, so 1,300 pounds of gold is 4,374 troy ounces. At the price prevailing as I write this, the price of gold is $1,807.90. So this haul would be worth $7.9 million in today's money. That's enough to justify a decent caper movie, even in 2021. Drake put the Capitana's crew, except for the pilot, ashore. The pilot was Greek, and therefore eventually known to Drake's men as Juan Greco. Pretty much the obvious nickname, if you think about it. Greco was a veteran pilot of the Pacific coast of South America and had charts that showed all the roadsteads all the way up to Lima. From early December until early February, the Golden Hind and the Capitana worked the coast, grabbing various other Spanish ships, but none with a big load of treasure. In each case, Drake released the crews on shore, but kept the ships so that the Spanish would have to spread warnings of Drake by foot or horseback. Eventually, word got out, though. In one instance, they barely missed grabbing a big hoard because the Spanish had unloaded the ship carrying it and put the silver in a warehouse to keep it from falling into Drake's hands. Spanish soldiers jeered from shore, daring Drake to come and take it directly. 
By January 1579, both the Golden Hind and the Capitana needed maintenance, so Juan Greco guided them to a secluded beach where they careened both ships over a couple of weeks. You will recall that careening is beaching the ship and then using levers and pulleys, moving it from side to side, scraping off all the barnacles, putting new pitch and tar in and that kind of stuff so it sails smoothly and without leaks. Eventually, however, Drake would conclude that speed was more important than having a lot of extra ships around, so he moved all his men back to the Golden Hind and one of its prefabbed pinnaces, which they'd assembled, hoisted the sails on the three remaining Spanish ships, and let them blow away with no crew or valuable cargo on board. On February 13th, the Golden Hind drew within sight of Cayo, the port of Lima, and the point of embarkation for an enormous amount of precious metal. Still a few leagues away, Drake intercepted a fishing ship and interrogated its captain, who reported that 700 bars of silver had been brought down to the port from Lima. He further reported that the Nuestro Sonora de la Concepcion had sailed for Panama nine days before with a hold full of silver belonging to Philip II. That would turn out to be a handy bit of information. About 10 o'clock at night, Drake slipped into the harbor at Cayo and dropped anchor right in the middle of 17 other ships. Most of them were deserted, their crews on shore leave. Save for one chest of coins, none of them contained any treasure. The silver bars had not been loaded. Then another ship, the San Cristobal, sailed into harbor. The harbor master rode out to greet her, and on the way spotted the silhouette of the Golden Hind, including all the guns sticking out of her. Now, careful listeners will recall that the Golden Hind, originally the Pelican, was, to the casual observer, a typical merchantman, a three-masted bark of the French type. The harbor master turned around and began screaming about the French, raiding the port and all that. The French, of course, had been raiding the Spanish for almost 50 years, and it was in fact reasonable for the harbor master, seeing a silhouette of a ship with a French design, to imagine that it was a French privateer come to raid the Spanish ports in the Pacific. Regardless, the jig was up. Drake had his men knock down the main masts of a couple of the faster Spanish ships, grabbed the San Cristobal, and bugged out. Not far along, the two ships were becalmed, and now, pursuing Spanish, appeared on the horizon. Drake removed everything from the San Cristobal that he wanted, including presumably anything that might have been a threat to the Golden Hind, and then released the Spanish ship with its crew. The wind picked up a bit and Drake spread all his sails and got out of Dodge. He set his bearing to catch up with the Nuestro Sonora de la Concepcion. That was a Spanish ship full of Philip's silver. It was known to Spanish sailors as the Cacafuego. Because we are a family podcast, I'll loosely translate my poorly pronounced Spanish for the kids. Kids, Cacafuego means... Poop fire. Now to Balf's account. Although she had a 10-day head start, Drake knew she would be calling at several ports en route to Panama and reckoned that he could still catch her. Alternately sailing the Golden Hind and pulling at the oars of the pinnace to tow her through the comms, Drake's men labored day and night to make up the distance. 
And on February 24th, they reached the point of Paida, 500 miles north of Lima. In the harbor was a bark laden with merchandise. Her crew fled in her boat, leaving the pilot and some slaves to deal with a pinnace full of armed men. Drake learned from the pilot that the Cacafuego had sailed from there two days earlier. He had the bark towed out of the harbor and set adrift and then resumed the chase, taking the pilot with him, as was his custom. That evening, they intercepted another ship, but detained her only long enough to confirm that she was not carrying any treasure and to take from her a black named Francisco, who said he had been a Cimarrone on the Isthmus when Drake was there. Drake grabbed still another bark on the morning of February 28, this one carrying 18,000 pesos in gold and silver. In that encounter, a black slave tipped off Drake that the purser of the Spanish ship had failed to mention another cache of silver hidden below. So Drake had the purser hung over the side of the ship and then dropped in the drink to make him talk. Drake's men rescued the man, and Drake ultimately let the bark go. With the Spanish grateful to be alive. I suppose it is worth observing. There are numerous accounts, I have not mentioned all of them, of black slaves of the Spanish helping Drake. No doubt they hated the Spanish, and any help in striking back was welcome. Remember the anti-Spanish fervor of the Cimarrones on the Isthmus of Panama a couple of episodes back. According to Sugden, Drake paid free black slaves who joined him at the same rates as English sailors on his crew. Quite remarkable for that day and age. And finally, one is forced to wonder whether Drake's black servant Diego, liberated at Number de Dias and loyal to Drake ever since, himself recruited freed black slaves encountered along the way. Now we'll wrap up this week with Samuel Balfe's account of the capture of the poop fire, which I cannot improve upon. Expecting they would soon overtake the Cacafuego, Drake offered a gold chain, which he had taken from one of the bark's passengers as a bounty to the first man to spot her. At noon on March 1st, 1579, they took the height of the sun and found they were directly on the equator. Shortly afterward, a cry was heard from the crow's nest, and young John Drake descended to the deck to collect his reward. The galleon's sails were visible 12 miles to leeward. To disguise the golden hind as a heavily laden merchantman, Drake left all her sails up and trailed strings of wine jars filled with water behind her to slow her down. When he saw Drake's sails, the Cacafuego's captain, San Juan de Anton, steered to converge with him. About nine o'clock at night, Anton later recounted to Spanish authorities. Now I'll go to Anton's testimony. The English ship crossed the stern of my ship and shortly came alongside, abreast of the tack. I hailed her, but the Corsair did not answer. On asking what ship it was, the answer came that it was a ship from Chile. And believing this, I went to the side, the English ship having already run foul of me. That means it took the wind from his sails, literally. Someone said, Englishman, strike sail. And another said, Strike sail, Senior San Juan Danton. If not, see that we will send you to the bottom. I said, What old tub is that to order me to strike sail? Come on board and do so yourself. 
When they heard this, a whistle sounded on the English ship and a trumpet responded. At once, they discharged what seemed to be about 60 arquebuses and then many arrows which struck the side of my ship. Shortly, a heavy gun was fired with chain balls which carried away the mizzen mast into the sea with the sail and the yard. Another heavy gun was fired, someone saying that I should strike. At this point, the launch came alongside on the port side with a matter of some 40 arquebusiers who climbed up the channels to which the shrouds are fastened and came aboard my ship. The English ship lay alongside on the starboard, and thus they made me strike sail. They inquired of me for the pilot and captain, as I was the only man on deck, and I denied being the man. However, as they saw no one else on deck, they seized me and passed me on board to the English ship, where I saw the corsair, Francis Drake, armed with a coat of mail and a helmet already disarming himself. He embraced me, saying, Have patience, such is the custom of war, and shortly ordered me shut up in his cabin. A bolt from one of the English crossbows had slashed Anton's face, and Drake attended to the wound himself. Then, with the Cacafuego's passengers and crews secured under guard, he gave the order to sail northwest until they were well beyond sight of land to avoid any pursuers. In the morning, Drake went aboard the prize and remained until noon inspecting her cargo. When he returned, he told his men their labors had been rewarded. Anton's ship was carrying 1,300 bars of silver weighing 26 tons, as well as 13 chests full of silver coins and 80 pounds of gold. I'm going to pause here and say that by my reckoning, 26 tons of silver at yesterday's closing price of $23.85 the troy ounce comes to a bit over $18 million. 80 pounds of gold is worth another $2 million. So a very solid haul on top of the $7.9 million previously recovered. Okay, back to Balf. On March 3rd, Drake's men began to transfer the treasurer across in the pinnace. It took three days to replace the Golden Hind's ballast with silver and restore her hold. As this work continued, Anton was kept aboard the English ship. He was seated at Drake's table for meals and the nightly performances of the ship's orchestra. Drake told Anton he was with John Hawkins at San Juan de Ulua when the treachery of the Viceroy of New Spain cost the lives of 300 Englishmen and said he had come to collect the money that was owed in compensation. He said the Queen of England had given him letters permitting him to make captures, and he had undertaken the labor of discovering a good route into the South Sea. If the King of Spain did not give Englishmen permission to trade on payment of the duties, he said he would come back and carry off all the silver. Drake was in this moment articulating an idea that would evolve into one of the core missions of Anglo-American navies in the 440 years since and which persists to this day, the enforcement of free trade over the oceans of the world, freedom of the seas. Back to Balf. Anton had a pair of silver drinking cups which Drake admired, and he took one of them as a memento, giving Anton in exchange a gilt silver bowl inscribed, Franciscus Drake. He also gave Anton a gilded armor breastplate and a fine arquebus, 
which he said had been sent to him from Germany. Then, with everything in readiness to depart, Drake distributed an assortment of sidearms and other gifts to Anton's passengers and crew, and gave them each thirty or forty pesos in coins for their trouble. Drake released all his accumulated prisoners except Nuna de Silva to Anton, and they shoved off, sailing lower in the water than previously. As the Golden Hind hoisted sail, one of Anton's sailors called across, Our ship shall no more be called the Cacafuego, but the Cacaplata. Your ship shall be called the Cacafuego. Drake's men gave out a roar of approval, and with that parting shout set sail for Nicaragua and the coast of New Spain. This seems like a good place to end this episode. I plan to take next week off because I need to build up a backlog of a couple of episodes to get me through a very busy stretch from mid-September to early October, chasing the legal tender and all. The reworked website will, however, have space for blog posts that are not tied to episodes, and I will use that capability in the Facebook page for the podcast, at History of the Americans, to declaim on various topics and otherwise spread the word. Thank you again for listening, and if you like what you hear, please rate the podcast on Apple and write a review. As always, shoot me comments, corrections, pats on the back, and eruptions of outrage at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com or on our Facebook page at History of the Americans or on our under-construction website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com. <laughs>